tonight we're talking about uh, the topic of deconstruction and uh, people walking away uh, from the faith. So, um, as always, whenever we cover any of these any of these topics, um, first of all, I'm not an expert. Okay, so there are people way smarter than me who've done a lot more research on this than I have, who've written extensively about this. Um, uh, who uh, you should also check out uh, uh, them as well. Um, but also, secondly, I'm not, as always, I'm not going to be able to cover everything tonight. This is not going to be exhaustive. This is going to be kind of pointing us in the right direction. But obviously, there's a lot of stuff that I don't have uh, have time to, to talk about tonight. Um, but at the end, I'm going to give, we're doing our, our panel discussion uh, next week where we'll kind of unpack this even more. Um, and so at the end, I'm going to give uh, my email address where you can uh, send uh, any questions. So along the, along the way tonight, if you have a question, go ahead and jot it down. And, and uh, afterwards, you can, you can shoot me an email. Um, we'll hopefully be able to, to work that into uh, to our panel discussion. Um, but when, we, when we're talking about deconstruction, um, you can find a lot of different uh, definitions out there for, for what deconstruction is and everything. But essentially what we're talking about is we're talking about breaking down a system of thinking and kind of dissecting it to see where, where it might be flawed, right? So if you think of like your belief system as like a house, deconstruction is kind of where you take apart that house brick by brick and kind of try and find where, where it's, it's flawed or falling short, right? So when you're talking about people deconstructing Christianity, it's kind of picking apart Christianity, deconstructing it, and, and asking whether or not it's, it's flawed, right? Trying to find where, where uh, they, they think there are flaws in, in the belief system, right? So the, sometimes this uh, results in, in somebody walking through doubts, right? As a Christian, you're going to, like, we, we all walk through seasons of doubt, right? So sometimes this, this results in somebody walking through a season of doubt uh, and working through that to where they come out on the other side with an even stronger and more robust faith, Right? Other times, it results in deconversion. So you have deconstruction that sometimes leads to deconversion. In other words, somebody no longer identifying as a Christian. One time they called themselves a Christian, and now they don't. And they walk away from Christianity entirely, right? All of us probably know of somebody who has, has walked through that or is currently walking through that, right? For me personally, the, Emily and I grew up in, in the same youth group, and we, we, have, we had friends in youth group who uh, called themselves Christians at the time, and now they've, they've completely walked away and abandoned that faith, right? At, at Snowbird, whenever I worked at, at Snowbird, the, I had a, a couple of fellow staff members who I worked with at the time who have now walked away from the faith, right? Some of you may have heard Brody talk about this. I can't remember if, he, if he, I've heard him talk about this a couple of times. I can't remember if he's mentioned it here or not. But he mentions at Snowbird, they, they have like pictures of like former, former uh, staffs. And where it's like 150 people that all worked that, that one summer. And there's, there's one summer in particular where, that I worked where he says he can do this on the picture. He can hold up his, his fingers like this in a circle. And just within that circle, he said, I counted about five to six, five or six uh, of those staff members who now have walked away from Christianity. And several of them are, are pursuing LGBT lifestyles, right? Now, clarification, that is not at all representative of Snowbird as a whole, okay? For, for every one of those, I can count 50 others that are still pursuing the Lord faithfully today, right? But it illustrates that, that like, people can look the part, right? Even be working in ministry and walk away, right? There's plenty of those stories, right? So it's, it's kind of a disturbing thing to, to talk about, right? But first of all, this is not an issue that the Bible suggests we should avoid, Right. You don't you don't see you don't see the Bible making the case of like, hey, just just sit down, just be quiet. Don't ask any questions. Just 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 like just blindly obey. Don't don't even pay any attention about that. Right. 
You see, on the contrary, you see where the times where the Bible says, hey, look at the evidence. Observe the evidence, right? Like, like Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthians, he says, hey, what if, what if Jesus hadn't raised from the dead? He actually points to, hey, what if all this is false? He says, if Christ hasn't raised from the dead, then we're hopeless, right? Our faith is in vain, right? So he says, hey, look at, look at what if this isn't, isn't actually true? Now, then he turns around and makes the case that, no, Jesus actually has raised from the dead, right? But he's not, he's not saying, hey, don't even think about that. Don't even, don't even approach that, right? Whenever Jesus calls Philip as his disciple, and Philip then goes and finds Nathaniel, right? Nathaniel's skeptical. And what does Philip say? And Philip doesn't say, no, 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 just, just push away your questions and just believe. He says, no, 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 come and see. Come check out the evidence for yourself, right? Come see the evidence, right? So biblical response to deconstruction is not to just kind of shut our eyes and pretend it's not there and just keep walking without addressing it, right? Also, I think this is really important. This is not new. This is nothing new, right? Deconstruction is not like popped up in the last decade or two, right? Deconversion, people walking away, walking away from Christianity, like throughout Christian history, it's just been known as apostasy, right? People, people claiming to be, to be followers of Christ, looking the part and then walking away, right? So the, the term deconstruction has be, kind of become like the new cool word over the last several years, right? But the term deconstruction is really just a new term for something that's literally thousands of years old, right? Now, if you look at statistics, yes, you can see that fewer and fewer people in the United States identify as Christian, right? Identify as Christian, right? So like plenty of people will identify as Christian, have identified as Christian without actually being true followers of Christ, Right. We know that to be the case. Right. But you like what that means is that cultural Christianity is on a decline. Right. That's not an indication that actual biblical Christianity is on a decline. Right. I think what it shows us is that there's there's an increasing separation between real biblical Christianity and this comfortable cultural Christianity that's kind of been lingering in our country for years. Right. It's getting more and more uncomfortable to claim Christianity in a fake way. Right. Also, this would, this would be more concerning if it was a new thing, right? Like, like if, if this was, and this is kind of the way our culture is portraying it, as though Christianity has just been kind of cruising, like, for, for hundreds of years, not really any problems, and now all of a sudden everybody's jumping ship, right? But that's not really, when you look historically at Christianity, that's not the case, right? Deconstruction is actually as old as the Bible itself. You see deconstruction stories in the Bible, Right? One of the clearest examples is Judas Iscariot. Judas deconstructed. He looked just like the other 11 disciples. Right? He did everything that they did. He walked right along with them. He followed Jesus for three years and then deconstructed. He walked away. Right? An Old Testament example of this would be King Saul. You look at King Saul at the beginning of his reign. Like, he, he looks the part. He looks like he's humble, following God's way, obeying God. And by the, by the time he gets to the end of his rule, he's completely abandoned that, gone his own way and deconstructed, right? Paul talks about a ministry partner named Demas. So he says, hey, he worked with me in ministry, and now he, he's abandoned and he's, he's deconstructed, right? So all, of, all, all three of those guys, they decided that the world was more appealing than Christ was, okay? Now, in, in Scripture, you also have examples of believers wrestling through doubt and coming out stronger on the other side. John the Baptist is an example of that, right? But deconstruction, today, deconstruction does seem more widespread, right? And a lot of that, I think, is due to social media, right? Where, where everybody can get on the internet and, and say, and, and like, tell their story, right? Which can be a good thing. It can also, like, it, it, you hear a lot more stories of deconstruction because everybody can, can tell their story, Right? 
So this is, this is in our culture, it's, it's become kind of a movement, right? It's an ex-evangelical movement where you have people writing books about it, publishing articles about it. You have online communities that are forming around people who have this in common, right? They're, they're, they're forming community around having deconstruction in common, right? You even have therapists who specialize in helping you walk through deconstructing your faith, right? Like these are the kinds of things that have come up in our culture over the last several years, Okay. And here's something else about this, this issue. It's rarely just purely apologetic, right? Whenever we're talking about like apologetics and, and defending the faith, giving proofs for Christianity, what I'm, what I'm seeing is this, this is rarely just an apologetics issue, right? Most people deconstructing today are not just wrestling with whether or not Christianity is true. They're wrestling with whether or not Christianity is good. That's what a lot of people are wrestling with, right? So it's, it, this isn't just as simple as, well, we just need to come up with enough apologetics proofs to prove that Christianity is true, okay? That's all well and good, but it's not as simple as just doing it. If we can convince them it's true, then that solves the problem. It's not that simple. A lot of people are not just saying, I don't think it's true. They're saying, I don't think it's moral. I don't think Christianity is moral. They're looking at culture, and they're thinking that, that our culture has a better, more loving, more moral way than Christianity. That's what they're becoming convinced of, Okay? So there is a ton to unpack with this, with this topic. Okay? So I, I kind of wrestled with, with and thought through how, how do I want to approach this. And so the way that we're going to unpack it, the way I'm going to approach it tonight, is by looking at, at a specific story of deconstruction. So I'm going to look at um, a story uh, that came out a couple years ago of uh, two guys named Rhett and Link. Okay? So just for my own curiosity, because I'm assuming there's going to be a mix in here, just for my own curiosity, raise your hand if you know who Rhett and Link are. Okay, that's kind of what I expected. Okay, so some in here, a lot of people are like, I have no idea who these guys are. Okay, so uh, Rhett and Link, if you don't know who, who Rhett and Link are, they're, they're really popular YouTubers. So they're, they're in their early 40s, and, they're, and when you hear me say that, don't picture like two lazy middle-aged dudes who have nothing else to do, who are just like, like walking around with a camera, like, hey, we'll put some stuff on YouTube. They, like they've actually built like a really successful company around their, their, their YouTube brand. Um, but why, why did I want to walk through it this way? A couple reasons. First of all, I think it's important to remember that we're talking about real people with real stories and real experiences. And so I want to walk through a real story. Like I don't, this, we're not talking about nameless, faceless ideas. We're talking about real people with real stories and real experiences. But also... With, when you look at, at Rhett and Link, there are a ton of factors at play. Like, we could spend hours just dissecting their stories, okay? But they, there are a ton of factors at play. It's, their, their story is very layered in, when you look at, at what happened and what factors led to, led to their story. So that all those factors are kind of like jumping off points where, like, it brings up topics in and of itself when you look at their, look at their story, okay? So when you, when you look at, like, what factors lead to deconstruction in somebody's life— Everybody's story is a little bit different, right? And the way I kind of think of it is, if you like, you could make like a, a, a list of like ingredients, if you will, of, of different factors that sometimes lead to deconstruction. And most stories that you look at, everyone's going to be a little bit different, but it's kind of like each story has some of those ingredients in different amounts in each, in each story. So they're all a little bit different, but you also see a lot of overlap as well. Hopefully that makes sense. So, but there's, very rarely is there one thing that you can point to and be like, that's why that person walked away from Christianity, especially with Rhett and Link. There's, there's usually like several different factors at, at play, okay? So, with Rhett and Link, first of all, 
when you look at their, at their story growing up in Christianity, these, when you listen to their story, it becomes very evident that these were not just like kind of surface level Christians. Just kind of show up every once in a while on a Sunday. That, that's not the, the kind of Christians that these guys were, right? The way they talk about it is they grew up with this as their worldview that defined everything. Like they centered everything around their Christian belief, right? And whenever, when they talk about them walking through deconstruction, they talk about it as a struggle. They were like, we, as we were walking through it, we didn't, it was not like we wanted to leave Christianity behind. Like you're not talking about some guys who like didn't really like going to church and were like grumpy and bitter at the church and were looking for a way out. You're talking about guys who, who like were invested and didn't want to let it go. That's their story. Okay. So let me, let me kind of summarize kind of 30,000 foot view. Let me kind of summarize their deconstruction story. And then let's talk about some of the factors related to deconstruction and how we as a church should approach them. So Rittenlink grew up in the 80s and 90s, and they grew up in evangelical Christianity. And that's not my term. That's what they say. They say, we grew up in evangelical Christianity in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. Okay, so small town, Bible Belt. They, they grew up in First Baptist Church, Bowie's Creek. Okay, so they, they grew up in, in evangelical Christian culture. And they, when you listen to them tell their story, if you, for those of you who grew up in, in, in church, who grew up in Christianity, when you listen to their stories... You're like, yep, I get that. Yep, like you can 100% identify with 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 the way that they the way that they talk. You're like, yep, that's how I grew up, right? They use like the same vocabulary, the same verbiage. They can articulate the gospel. They can articulate what their Christian beliefs were. And th- then they talk about like whenever they moved in their teenage years, they were like, we we were the, the teenagers who started taking our faith seriously. Like they said, they said like like some of our friends were like starting to you know like get in trouble, starting to rebel. They were like, we took it seriously, right? And then in the, in the late 90s, they went uh, off to college as engineering students at NC State. Now, if you don't already know their story, you might assume that this is the part where I say, well, they went off to college, and then, they, then that's when they fell off, right? They got in a science class at college, and then they fell off from Christianity. It's actually exactly the opposite. They went off to college and got more involved, okay? They went off to college, and they, they got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now known as CRU. So they, they got heavily involved. They, they were going to, to weekly crew meetings. They were going to weekly Bible studies all the way throughout their, their uh, college career. They, during, during the summers, a lot of times they were spending their summers on mission, right? They weren't just like going on vacation. Like they were, they were going on mission trips, right? They, they ended up uh, not just being involved in crew. They ended up getting involved in leadership at, at crew. They started being involved with the, the weekly meetings of, of helping to, to like MC and do some of the speaking at, at the weekly meetings and even some of the, the annual conferences and events. Like they were starting to get like, like leadership roles as a part of crew. And then in the, in the early 2000s, whenever they, whenever they graduated from college, first they, they got engineering degrees and they, they got engineering jobs for a while. But pretty quickly after that, they ended up leaving those engineering jobs to go in as full, into full-time ministry with crew, which involved, it was, it was a job where like you had to raise 100% of your own funding, right? So they had to go, they had to spend, each of them had to just do odd jobs to make ends meet, go around and spend, spend a year or two uh, trying to raise support and asking people for money so that they could go full-time into ministry with crew. Okay, that's how bought in these guys were. Okay, so they they did that. They what they ended up doing uh, on staff at Crew was they began using their talent as speakers and entertainers. They began to use that as as a way of going onto college campuses, and they would do evangelism training. 
they were teaching people how to share the gospel. So they were doing that, and, and part, of, part of that job, uh, long story short, involved them also like making videos kind of, kind of along with that. And they, they later ended up, uh, start, as part of that, they started using this, this new thing that came out in 2006 called YouTube. And they, they had no idea what, that it was going to become what it is today. They were just like, okay, we can kind of start using this to upload some of our videos on the Internet. And so they, they started doing that. And then the, kind of the late 2000s, early 2010s, they started getting a lot more popularity on, on YouTube. They ended up walking away from their, their ministry jobs at Crew to kind of take this risk and pursuing this YouTube thing full time. So they did that. They ended up in 2012, they ended up creating a, a daily show on YouTube called Good Mythical Morning, still going today, five times a week. Every video has millions of views. And they, it's now actually like grown into this like big successful company called Mythical Entertainment. It has like multiple YouTube shows and channels and podcasts and all sorts of stuff. Okay, So that's kind of the career path they went. Now, along the way, starting when they were working on crew kind of in the early 2000s, they, they each started wrestling with their faith. And their, their stories are interconnected, but they're also independent as well. But they, both of them each started wrestling, wrestling with, their, with their faith. And long story short, I'm leaving out a ton of details, but long story short, by the time they got to 2013, that was kind of the point where, where they finally, by that point, they had, they had moved out to California, lived out there for about a year or two by that point. And they finally jumped ship from, from Christianity. And that's, that's the actual language that they use, right? So they, they left evangelical Christianity behind entirely. And the way Rhett actually puts it is he, he, he gives the imagery of jumping from the boat of Christianity, so to speak, not from the Christian boat into another boat. In other words, he, they, they didn't jump from Christianity into another religion. The way he puts it is they jumped from the boat just into a sea of nothingness, into just uncertainty. I don't really know what I believe like they talk about like trying to, to pursue truth, but it's really just creating their own truth, right? But it's a lot of uncertainty and just jumping into, into the unknown. That's the way that they talk about it. And so in, they, they, they didn't go public with that for a while. The, the, the first time they came out publicly and told that story was in 2020. They, they told their stories on uh, their, their podcast. And when you look at their stories, Rhett is he's a very cerebral guy. So his story, his process was much more intellectual, much more uh, about uh, apologetics. So his was much more kind of rejecting the, the, the proofs of Christianity. And what's interesting is when he talks about his time identifying as a Christian, he says, I was the, I was the apologetics guy. He says, I was the guy that would sit next to you on an airplane, and if you were an atheist, I would have a conversation with you, and I would give you all these proofs for Christianity about, and, and convince you that Christianity was true. And now he's rejected all that. Link, on the other hand, is, is his, his journey is kind of more internal and, and kind of the more emotional side of things. He, he struggled a lot with self-condemnation and shame and not feeling good enough. Not for, he, it was like Christianity didn't feel the way that he wanted it to. Right? He, he also struggled with some of the intellectual things, but it, kind of those two things kind of work together more so in his story. Okay? So at this point, these guys no longer identify as Christians. Right? So they, if you, when they, they say, like, if we had to put a label on it, they would call themselves hopeful agnostics, right? where they're like, we don't really know if God exists. We kind of hope that he does. Right, but they, that's how they identify. They, they say that they're not religiously affiliated. They don't like identify with any particular religion. Okay, so that's kind of their story from kind of a thirty thousand foot view. Okay, so first of all, the, the the first thing I think whenever we dive into this is we need to understand what the Bible says about apostasy. 
right? What does the Bible say about, about people like Rhett and Link who were seemingly committed Christians? And not only that, were involved in ministry, right? What does the Bible say about people like that? People like Judas who were involved in ministry. People like Demas who were involved in ministry, but then walked away. Well, the Bible actually says several things, right? These are just a couple. First John two nineteen, John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. And then in 2 Timothy 4, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Right? Jesus even talks about it when he, when he talks about the parable of the sower. He, he talks about different ways that people will, will hear the gospel. And he talks about some people who look like they receive the gospel. Right? They look like they're, they're, they're following Jesus. And then for various reasons, they end up falling away from it. Right? I, could, I could go on and on about what the, what the Bible says about this. But the point is this. Those who are truly saved cannot lose their salvation. The Bible's clear about that. Okay? Secondly, there are some who will look just like true followers of Jesus. Just like Judas. Think about the night that Judas betrayed Jesus. Think about just a mere couple hours before he's going to betray Jesus. They're sitting around eating dinner. And G- Jesus tells the twelve collectively, he says, he says, one of you is going to betray me. Not a single one of them said, I bet it's Judas. You know what they said? They said, is it me? They started saying, Jesus, is it me? Am I going to? They started, they suspected themselves before they suspected Judas. Judas ju- looked just from, from their eyes. They lo- he looked just like the other 11. Jesus was the only one who saw through it. That's evidence that they were never truly saved to begin with. That they fooled everybody, even themselves. I think Judas had himself convinced that he was a follower of Jesus. And we don't, one thing I don't have time to, to talk about tonight is to kind of counter some of the, some of the things that Rhett and Link bring up specifically. Um, especially Rhett, because Rhett is more intellectual, takes a more apologetics approach. But I'll, I don't have time to dive into, into those specifics tonight. I was going to, and then I had to cut it out. Um, but I'll, I'll say this. First of all, when you listen to Rhett and Link's stories, they, when you first listen to them, they sound very compelling and convincing. They do. I'd be lying to you if I if I said that. Oh yeah, you can you can see it. when you listen to it. It's like it's like it sounds compelling, and there are some reasons why it sounds compelling in the way that they tell the story. Okay, but secondly, when you start thinking through it critically and you start looking at what they're actually saying, there's there's plenty of holes in what they're in what they're saying. Okay, so again, I don't have time to to discuss all that tonight. Uh, it's not an apologetic session. Um, but if you're, if you're interested in talking about some of those things, I'd be happy to talk about them, uh, later on. But also at the end, I'm going to give, uh, some resources specifically to some people in, in like some articles and podcasts and whatnot who have specifically addressed some of the things that Rhett and Link brought out and kind of give some counter arguments. So I'm going to give some of those at the end, but with the time that we have left, let's talk about some of the reasons why stories like Rhett and Link happen. And more importantly, let's talk about what we should be doing as a church when it comes to this issue. Okay? Again, this is not going to be exhaustive. I'm not going to be able to cover everything. But hopefully this will kind of get us pointed on the right track. Okay? So number one, constantly point to a correct understanding of Scripture. 
constantly point to a correct understanding of Scripture. And th- even just this topic is massive. Or we could take this and go in a hundred different directions. Okay, we could, we could spend several sessions just talking about this. Okay, but I'm, I'll say just a couple of things about it. Okay, first of all, sometimes we can we can tend to point more to Christian sayings and Christian culture things even more than Scripture itself. Right, like we can we can we can point more to like Christian lyrics or Christian quotes or things like that, even more than than scripture. I'm not saying never bring up a Christian quote. Never, never like say something that C. S. Lewis said, never bring up a lyric from a song. But like make first of all, make sure all those things are actually grounded in scripture. But secondly, make sure make sure we're pointing primarily to scripture itself, that we're referencing scripture itself. Okay? So be very intentional about pointing to the Bible itself. Okay? Something else I'll say constantly make sure and constantly be checking ourselves to make sure that we're pointing to what the Bible actually says and not just what we're assuming it says. Because I think, I found this with myself, the, I think we've, that we as Christians can slip into assuming things about the Bible way easier than we, than we realize, right? We can, we can start assuming that there are things in the Bible that aren't actually there. Right? We can start assuming that it says stuff that, that it doesn't actually say. Okay, so th- let me give you a couple examples just to, just to illustrate this. Okay? So, and these examples are not like doctrinal issues. These are just cases of where we get details of stories wrong. Okay? But th- these are things that, that like, I've heard like, widespread and thought myself for a long time in Christianity. And then I looked at the Bible and I was like, wait, that's not there. Okay? So first example. The, if you remember a year, like a year or two ago... Um, when Jonathan was walking through uh, uh, the book of Acts. He, he mentioned this. In the book of Acts, the, I had grown up my entire life being taught that God changed Saul's name to Paul. I was taught that that was in the book of Acts. A couple of years ago, I was reading in the book of Acts, and I was like, okay, wait, did I miss that verse? And I went back and started looking for it, and I was like, wait, like, where's that at? And I started doing some research, and I was like, wait a minute, that's not actually in there. Like, there's not a verse in Acts. Like, whenever, whenever Jesus, like, appears to him and saves him, there's not a verse where it says God changed Saul's name to Paul. As a matter of fact, Luke keeps calling him Saul, like, pretty, like, for several chapters after he gets saved, right? He just switches, like, his Jewish name was Saul, his Gentile name was Paul, right? And Luke just switches to calling him Paul. And there's reasons why he switches from one to the other. But, and there's, like, really cool reasons but, I, like, I missed out on all those because I thought, God changed Saul's name to Paul. And then I looked and I was like, that verse isn't actually in there, right? Another assumption that I grew up, like, thinking, and then I looked and I was like, I can't find that anywhere, okay? I grew up, like, having this picture that when, when Jesus was crucified, Jesus was crucified up on top of a hill. Go read the four Gospels. None of them actually say it was up on top of a hill, Right? They, what they say is it was at a place called Golgotha. It was a place called the Skull. Okay? And again, like, don't take my word for any of this. Go read the Gospels. Go read the Book of Acts. Don't trust me. Okay? Go look for it. If you find the verse, let me know. Okay? But they say a place called the Skull, a place called Golgotha. Right? They don't actually say it was up on. No, like, do they say it wasn't on a hill? No. But when you look at what's in the text and culturally the way we know they crucified people, there's actually a lot, like, a lot of evidence to indicate it probably wasn't up on a hill. It's probably right next to the road, right? But the, now, do I think that we should throw out songs that say, uh, uh, I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I'll believe whatever the cause. No, I'm not saying throw out those songs. I'm, I have no problem singing that song because it's not about the hill. It's about Jesus, okay? But the, but, like, 
the point I'm making, and neither of these examples are like changing any like core doctrine about Christianity, right? It's just us inserting details into the story that we assume are there, right? So I just want to illustrate the, the fact that we can really easily start to assume that there are things in the Bible that aren't actually there. And we need to be pointing, especially young people, to what's actually in the Bible, right? So make sure we're constantly checking that we're believing what's actually in the Bible, okay? Also, how we read the Bible is important, okay? And this could be a whole other session. I don't have time to to dive into this. But studying the Bible the right way is massively important, right? There are a bunch of wrong ways that we can approach reading the Bible that can end up leading us astray. So how we approach the Bible, how we read the Bible is massively important, okay? But also, something else that I think is important with with communicating to young people especially, is being honest about what essential things all biblical Christians agree on, and also being honest with which non-essential things we disagree on. Okay? One of the things with, when you look at, at uh, Rhett and Link's stories, especially with Rhett, one of the things he says is one of the first things that really rattled his faith early on is that... He he realized he kind of grown up with this assumption that like all Christians is, is pretty much agreed on on everything like all together, and it kind of rattled him when he realized. Well, wait a minute, there are a lot of things. A lot of he was looking at a lot of like non essential things, and being like, there's a lot of disagreement among Christians about these things, right? And that that kind of like threw him for a loop, right? And so the something that I think is really important is this. It's called, called theological triage. Okay, so if you know what triage is. Especially if you're in the, in the medical field, triage is like where you prioritize issues, right? Like if you're in the medical field, you uh, like you, if you have a bunch of uh, injured people, you you address people based on the most serious ones first, right? It's not first come first serve, okay? You address the most serious issues first, so you prioritize the issues, okay? So this is the idea with with when we approach theological doctrines, when we approach theological issues, recognizing which ones are non-negotiable. And which ones different Christians see differently, okay? So the, you, have, you have first-tier issues, like top-tier. These are core doctrines. These are the things that are non-negotiable. These are the things that all true, biblical, faithful Christians agree on and believe, right? So these are the things, like, if something is in, the, is in this category, that means that, like, if I deny that, that's evidence that I'm not actually a true follower of Christ, Right, so this is stuff like the inerrancy of Scripture, stuff like Jesus being fully God and fully man, the doctrine of the Trinity, that kind of stuff. Okay, those are the core doctrines of Christianity. That's what all true Christians agree on. Then you have like second tier stuff. So this is stuff that's still important, but different Christians will see differently. Right. So these are these are most of the things that that would uh, uh, differentiate like different denominations in Christianity. Right. So something we might see differently from a Presbyterian per se. Right. So a really good example of this is baptism, right? Like as a Baptist, I believe in baptizing by immersion uh, after a person has professed faith in, in Christ, right? Whereas a Presbyterian uh, is going to believe in, in sprinkling a child in hopes of them one day, excuse me, in hopes of them one day professing faith in Christ, right? So I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to go to the same church as them, right? The, I'm going to see that differently, but they're also my brother or sister in Christ, Right. And then you have third tier issues. Right. Third tier issues are stuff that like we can agree to disagree on even in the same like local body of believers. Right. Even in this church. Right. An example is end time views. Right. So like when you read Revelation and Daniel. Right. There are even in this church, we have like varying opinions on like on when we talk about end times in, in Scripture. 
right? And that's a, as long as we believe that Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things right, I'm on the same page with you, okay? So, the, but that's something where even in the same local body, we can agree to disagree and still be in, we don't have to break fellowship over that, right? But this is, this is hugely important, okay? It's hugely important that even if you don't like lay out and like make a chart for, for your kids and students, I'm not saying that, right? But I'm saying we need to, to approach things with this in mind, right? And talk about things with the level of importance that they warrant, right? Because here's what's happened. What, what progressive quote-unquote Christianity has done is taken everything and made it a third-tier issue. Taken everything, including like core doctrines of Christianity, and said, no, we can just agree to disagree on that stuff. We don't really have to believe the Bible is inerrant, right? That's what, that's what progressive Christianity has done, okay? But there's another mistake we can make. And I've, I've, I've seen this from, from, from Bible, solid, Bible-believing, well-meaning churches, is swinging too far to the other end of the spectrum where they say, well, no, we can't do that. And in the name of, of trying to not compromise, in the name of, of, of saying, well, no, we have to hold to truth, they end up swinging too far to the other end of the spectrum where they end up start taking everything and making it a first-tier issue. So they start taking their own personal convictions and their own personal opinions and they start making it first-tier issues. That turns into legalism. So if you take everything and make it a third-tier issue, you get relativism. Yeah, just believe what you want. If you take everything and make it a first-tier issue, then you end up with legalism, right? Taking things that, that are my opinions and equating them with gospel truth, right? So that when it, if we do that, you're actually making it more likely for young people to swing back to the third tier. You're making it much more likely for them to swing back to relativism. Because whenever they start to realize, wait a minute, my, my parents and my church and my leaders are, are getting really dogmatic about this thing that, that is like really is just their opinion. So I guess, you know, them, them saying that the Bible is in error, and I guess that's just an opinion too, right? I guess the thing about Jesus being fully God and fully man, I guess that's, you know, I can take that or leave it. You see the problem? Right? When we started like, putting all those things together and we don't, we don't talk about them with the importance that they warrant, then we actually end up swinging them away from the church. Right? So don't waver on the essentials. Don't compromise on the essentials. Right? But also be honest about what the non-essentials are. Have conversations about them. Okay? Something else about Rhett and Link's story is they, whenever they're talking, they'll say some things about Christianity that really aren't representative of real biblical Christianity. It's more representative of, like, Christian culture, right? And so, the, in, one, in one sense, like, that's them not, like, being able to, to decipher between, like, real Christianity and cultural Christianity. But I think there's also a lesson for us in this too, okay? Which is that we shouldn't conflate. Be careful about conflating Christianity with non-Christian things, right? The biggest example where I think it, the biggest temptation for us to trip up in this area is with politics, okay? The, the gospel should 100% inform our politics. The gospel 100% should inform how I vote, how I approach issues. However, really, really quickly, we can, we can slip into tying our, our Christian beliefs and our politics together, and treating them like they're, like they're equal, right? The gospel informs my politics. The gospel does not equal my politics. The gospel has to transcend politics, right? So now what happens is whenever we tie Jesus too closely to a political figure or a political party or a political idea, right? Well, then what happens whenever that political figure or that political party then starts doing something that's unbiblical 
or something that's immoral or whatever. Well, if we've fused Jesus to that, then we've just, we, we've like tossed up a softball for the world to attack Jesus and attack Christianity, right? Because we've fused Jesus with a person or a thing that is fallible, right? So the gospel should inform our politics, but it does not equal our politics. So be careful how we approach that, right? And politics is just one, one example, okay? So that, that's the first thing is how we approach scripture. Secondly is, and this one's going to be a lot quicker, okay? Clearly communicate how God's way, which is revealed in the Bible, how God's way is both true and good. Both of them. It's both true and good, okay? Again, I mentioned this earlier. People are becoming convinced that Christianity is not good. They're becoming convinced that Christianity is immoral. They're becoming convinced that Christianity is unloving, that it's judgmental, that it's whatever, fill in the blank. And so they start loving something else more than Jesus. Okay? Part, of, part of Rhett and Link's story is that, they, and they, they say this. This is not me like, putting words in their mouth. Like, Rhett actually said this in one of their episodes. He said, like, looking back at our time working at Crew, um, when they, they were working there, and part of that was them making content, was, was part of their job. He said, looking back at our time at Crew, it, like being totally honest, he said, at that time, we believed in Crew's mission. Like, we believed in the gospel. We, we believed in, in the mission of what we were doing at Crew. But what we were passionate about was making content. They were passionate about their job. They believed the gospel, but they were passionate about something else. Right? So there came a point where their beliefs about Jesus did not equal a passion for Jesus. They became unconvinced that Jesus is better. So we need to be teaching young people not just to have a belief in Jesus, but a desire for Jesus. Both of them. We can't just believe that Christianity is true, but not good. And on the flip side, we can't just believe that Christianity is good and useful, but not fully true. We have to have both with the right long-term perspective. That's number two. Number three, guard against idolatry and ulterior motives for following Jesus. Guard against idolatry and ulterior motives for following Jesus. I think this is a big reason why you see a lot of young people walking away from, from the faith. They don't believe that Jesus is supremely valuable. They want something more than Jesus. Okay? Whenever, whenever you listen to, to Rhett and Link's stories, kind of a constant theme that you see whenever they're talking about like their, their high school, college, early adult years, a constant theme that comes up in their story is them talking about like, like really liking being in front of an audience, right? Like starting when they were in a band in high school, they uh, they were on stage leading as part of crew. They whenever YouTube came along, that was a new audience, and so they they were like, we really like being in front of an audience. And they were like, when we were in crew, like we believed, like we were still holding to those beliefs, but we really liked being in front of an audience. So what they what that shows is they they at the time they they think they're loving Jesus. But they're loving something else more than Jesus. They had eleva- they got to a point where they elevated gifts and abilities to an idolatrous level. So when when a lot of people deconstruct Christianity, a lot of times it's often because they really want sin more, right? And so the, the deconstruction is really just an excuse to chase sin. That's not every case, but it's a lot of cases, right? It's not always, but many times that the intellectual arguments against Christianity are really just following a heart that's already fallen in love with something else besides Jesus. 
this is really common in the LGBT community that where, where they look at the Bible and they say, well, the Bible doesn't affirm what I'm desiring. And so I need to find a way of separating myself from the Bible. I need to find a way of deconstructing the Bible to justify what I want to run towards. Right. Again, that's not every case, but that's a lot of cases with, with written link in hindsight, looking back, it's evident that they were really identifying as Christ followers for ulterior motives rather than truly because they wanted Jesus supremely. So when those ulterior motives began fading, so did their reasons for identifying as Christians. One of the downsides to growing up in comfortable cultural Christianity is there are ulterior motives to following Jesus besides just Jesus himself. With Rhett and Link, they, after they, they had moved to, to Los Angeles... They, and their, their process of deconstruction is not like they moved to Los Angeles and then all of a sudden everything fell apart. They, they had already been going on that way by the time they moved out to California. Okay? But they, they got to the, when, when they were in Los Angeles, they got to the point of asking, why are we still believing this? Because by that point, they'd already kind of torn it apart. And they, they say that, that, that it happened when they were in California because they said they wouldn't have asked those questions when they were still living in North Carolina, when they were still working in ministry, when they were still in, an, in a largely evangelical context. Right. And what they would say about it is that it was because when they got to Los Angeles, they felt free to finally ask those questions. Right. They weren't they weren't scared of 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 asking those questions like they were when they were in ministry or an evangelical context. Right. Because they were like, I wasn't going to ask that when I was working in ministry like that. That was my livelihood. Right. But there there's more to the explanation, I think. Right. The additional explanation is that it was evidence that their faith had been built on ulterior motives in the first place and not truly on Jesus as much as they had thought it was. So what they were missing was that they made those beliefs and decisions based on ulterior motives. And when those ulterior motives started drifting away, there wasn't a foundation left for their faith. Jesus himself had not been the foundation. He may have been very important to them. He may have seemed very personal to them. He may have seemed very authoritative to them, but he was not supremely valuable to them. Which is the same thing you see in the Bible with Judas, with Demas, with King Saul, with all those stories. So what what does that mean for us? What do we take away from that? Make sure that we and those around us are following Jesus primarily because we believe he is supremely valuable. Not because of some ulterior motive for following him or identifying as a Christian. So when you look at Romans 1, when you read Romans 1, written link are perfect examples of, of Romans 1. Let me, let me read part of, part of the passage. Paul says this. Think about written link with, with this as he's talking. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They decided that they wanted something else more than God. 
And so God said, okay. In Scripture, when you, when, when you see people, starting with Adam and Eve, when you see people saying, I want something else besides God, God says, okay, if that's what you want. And that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 1. Last point, number four. Create room for honest discussion and doubts. This one's huge. Create room for honest discussion and doubts. Okay? This, I think, is probably one of the biggest factors that helped to push Rhett and Link away. Was that they, they didn't really have room or didn't feel like they had room to honestly unpack doubts and questions that they had. Okay? Like I said earlier, as Christians, we're going to walk through seasons of doubt. Doubts are going to come up. Right? So be, first of all, be honest, especially with young people. Be honest that there are arguments out there that look really compelling. Because there are. You look at what non-Christians are saying. You'll hear non-Christians say some arguments against Christianity that are like, that looks like a pretty good point. It looks really compelling when you first look at it, right? Now, for me, every time I've dug into one of those arguments, I've found it to, to, to not hold out, right? But when you first look at it, it looks really compelling. Be honest about that. Okay, don't paint this picture with young people that way, you know, every attack against the Bible is just, you know, it's just dumb on its face, right? Because then they're going to they're gonna hear somebody make an argument that's going to sound really compelling, and they'll be like, well, I thought, yeah, that sounds pretty intelligent, and I thought none of these arguments were going to be intelligent. Also do this, be, be pro, even like without them asking hard questions, be proactive in asking them hard questions. Ask them the hard questions first, right? Ask, talk about what, what the Bible says about slavery, right? Talk about in, in the book of Joshua, whenever, whenever God sends Joshua and tells him to go wipe out entire groups of people. Because those are some of the challenges that are being raised against, against scripture, right? Talk about what the Bible says about gender roles. Talk about, about passages in the Bible that look like contradictions at first. Because those are there, right? I don't know if you've seen them. There are passages that you read in the Bible, and when you first read across it, you go, wait a second. Like, that looks like a, a contradiction right there. Right? Explore those, right? Now, again, every time I've looked into one of those, it's like, oh, no, that's not actually a contradiction. And usually what happens is I actually get a deeper understanding of what the text means. Right? We had an, when we went through 1 Samuel with students like a year or two ago, when we got to 1 Samuel 15, that, go read it. There's a, a really clear example in 1 Samuel 15 where it looks like a blatant contradiction. Go read it and then look into it. If you have questions, come ask me. Okay? But it, it looks like a blatant contradiction. We dug into it and was like, oh, no, it's actually not. Right? For, for, whenever Rhett tells his story, he talks about uh, like he had been taught that like the, the man, biblically, the, like the man is supposed to like be the spiritual leader of his home. And he, but Rhett kind of like thought in his mind that that means that he was supposed to have all the answers. He thought, when, he was like, when I was a Christian, I thought that meant I was supposed to have all the answers for my family. That's not what it means, right? That was something he had put on himself or maybe somebody else had put on him. That's not what the Bible says, right? If, they, if, if somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer, you know what you say? I don't know. But let's find out together. That's what we say. Say, hey, that's a pretty good question. Let's explore it together. That's how we approach it. Right? Also, address questions and answer questions without trying to, like, shut it down immediately. That can be, like, our knee-jerk reaction. Right? But when we do that, when we are like, we're going to shut down and answer this question as fast as possible. Right? That communicates that we're not confident in the answers. 
it's given this impression that we're not confident in what, what Christianity actually says. We're not confident in what the Bible actually says. And we're kind of scared of questions and challenges. And we, we want to like, push them away as quickly as possible. I have to, every time a student asks me a challenging question, I have to fight that urge. Because this is a knee-jerk reaction, right? Is to be like, oh no, they're questioning. I need to answer this question like really quickly and just, like show that there's no, no weight in it, right? But like create it as a dialogue, right? Like, help, help them process through it. Don't just be like, I need to give them a quick answer and then move on from it, right? When, whenever, whenever a student asks me a question, I always try to, to finish by saying, after I give an answer, I always try to finish by saying something like, does that make sense, right? Does any part of that not make sense, right? I'll, I'll always try and, try and say, hey, does, does that answer your question? And I, and I tell them, be honest if it didn't. If that didn't answer your question, tell me. Unpack and explore these things in community, right? Have, like, don't just send off students to be like, yeah, just go look into it yourself. Be like, hey, let's walk through it together. Let's explore it together, right? Just like we, we want to study and understand the Bible in community, we want to process through challenges to the Bible in community, right? That was what Rhett and Link didn't have. They weren't, they weren't unpacking these. Largely, they were not unpacking these things in Christian community, okay? And also unpack them with a cur- in curiosity mode. Not in automatic debate mode, right? Unpack, like have a mode of curiosity. Be like, hey, let's look at the, let's look into this. Let's see what the Bible actually says about this. Okay. Also, don't confuse like good hard questions with a negative path of deconstruction and hostility. Right? If, if somebody asks a hard question, don't automatically be like, oh no, they're going off the deep end. Right? They might just be asking good questions, which they should be. Right? So don't, if they ask a hard question, don't freak out. And also, whenever if we approach it that way, then down the road, that gives them extraordinary confidence whenever they come across something that they've never heard before. Because they're going to. They're going to hear questions and arguments and debates, and people are going to bring up things about like challenging the Bible that they never thought about, that they never heard of, that we don't have time to talk about, because we don't have time to talk about everything. right? They're going to hear something that they never heard before. But if we've already walked them through the process of, of working through things and walking through the process of, hey, I don't know the answer yet, but I'm going to go find the answer. Then later on, when they're on their own and they're, they encounter something else unfamiliar, it's not going to throw them for a loop. They're going to be like, hey, I've been here before. I don't know the answer yet, but I'm, I'm confident that there is an answer. So I'm going to go look for it. Also, and we're almost done. Be careful and pay attention to how we talk about those who disagree with us. Whether religiously, politically, whatever. Okay? Make sure that you don't talk disrespectfully about them, whether they're in the room or not. Okay? And make, make sure that we don't, we don't fall into create, like, like painting them with some sort of stereotype or caricature. Okay? Because it, when we're talking about people who disagree with us, it's really easy to just kind of write them off as like unintelligent and, or, or like mean or hateful or whatever, right? But if we do that, one day your kids are going to encounter somebody who disagrees with them, who breaks all those stereotypes. They're going to encounter somebody who staunchly disagrees with them, who's kind, who's loving, who's intelligent and articulate, and they're going to be like, wait a minute. And it's going to throw them for a loop, right? So don't create caricatures of people who disagree with us, right? Even if you don't explicitly say that out loud, right? Be careful of the tone and attitude you use, right? 
that for, for Rhett and Link, this was a big part of their story too, particularly when it came to when they started meeting people who were homosexual. They, they talk about like meeting people, meeting gay people who were really nice and loving, more loving than some of their Christian friends and really compassionate and generous and smart and articulate. And, but they had already, the way they grew up, they had had this caricature of, of homosexual people in their mind. And then they met somebody that broke all those stereotypes and they're like, wait a minute. And what they thought was, okay, if my parents and my leaders were wrong, if I was wrong in like the way I thought these people are, then maybe I was wrong in thinking that homosexuality is a sin too. So be careful about the way that, that, that we talk about people who disagree with us. Okay? Let me, let me wrap up with some encouraging things. Okay? First of all, like I said earlier, this is nothing new. Okay? This isn't a new thing. This has been around for thousands of years, literally. It's as old as the Bible. Okay? And we're, Christians are not, this is not something where Christians are like backed into a corner, scrambling for answers on. Okay? When, you, I, when it comes to this, I think Rhett and Link kind of give themselves a little too much credit in this area because they, not that they like are deconstructing as like a gotcha or like an attack on Christianity. I don't think that. But I do think that they, in their minds, they think they've created kind of like some sort of conundrum for, for Christians where Christians don't really know what to do with them and are trying to like scramble for answers. It's like if we, if we like have, have written link story over here and then the Bible over here, we're like looking back and forth. They think that Christians are like looking back and forth being like, how does that fit? I, like, I'm looking at the Bible, and that story doesn't really make sense. Well, no, when I look at Rhett and Link, and then I look at the Bible, I go, yeah, that makes sense. As a matter of fact, if the Bible is true, I would expect there to be, to, to be stories like Rhett and Link. I would expect those stories to exist, because you find them in the Bible itself. The way the Bible, t- the stuff I read tonight, based on those things, you would expect stories like theirs to exist. Okay? Another encouraging thing Remember that this is not a one-way street. And what I mean by that is that I think we have, have in our minds that our culture has kind of portrayed it this way. And I think a lot of Christians have kind of gotten sucked into thinking this way. That we have, you have Christianity over here, and then you have like postmodern culture over here, and you, you've got like this mass exodus of people moving this way, right? And, it, and it's a one-way street. And, the, and like Christianity is over here just like trying to hold on for dear life and slam on the brakes, right? But remember... There are not just people going this way. There are people going this way too. Jesus is still saving people. Alyssa Childers, she says this. Alyssa Childers is is, uh, is very involved in in kind of dialoguing with progressive Christianity and kind of processing through what what uh, progressive quote unquote Christianity says. And she she says this. She says, as Christians, we should be encouraged to remember that for every Rhett and Link, there's a Lee Strobel a J. Warner Wallace, a Holly Ordway, a C.S. Lewis, and a Rosario Butterfield who tested their beliefs against the evidence, people who found atheism wanting. With the help of the Holy Spirit, they became convinced that Christianity is true as they gazed deeply at Christ's beauty. There are plenty of people who've looked at the exact same evidence as Rhett and Link who had every, had every reason to reject the gospel, had every motivation to reject the gospel, and yet they place their faith in Jesus Christ. There are plenty of those stories. 
there aren't any there aren't any new questions being challenged against Christianity, right? Sometimes they, they come in different looking packages, but it's really the same questions that have been thrown at Christianity for hundreds of years. Okay? And lastly, last thing I'll say, remember to point people to Jesus, not to topics, discussions, debates, arguments, ideas. We're pointing people to Jesus. Don't lose sight of that. Right? Uh Last thing I'll, I'll throw up here, uh, and Ashley, maybe if we can leave this up even after, even after we're done. Um, the, I'll put this up here. You can take a picture of it. Um, you can, if you want to write all of it down, go for it. Um, but, or you can just take a picture of the screen. Um, but first of all, if you have questions or think of questions this week that um, uh, you want us to talk about in the panel next week, uh, you can send them to, to my email, bzortman at schindler.org. Um, and also uh, put some uh, resources up there. Again, the, the specific resources I put up there, I could have put a bunch of resources up there. I specifically put ones up there that kind of address, like I said earlier, uh, these are people who have, who have kind of addressed some of the things that, some of the challenges against Christianity, particularly that Rhett and Link themselves have, have said. Um, so uh, one of those is uh, Elisa Childers that I mentioned a minute ago that I just quoted. Um, she uh, has a, a blog and she put out right after Rhett and Link uh, released their story, she put out a, a, a blog that uh, was entitled Let's Deconstruct the Deconversion Story, the Case of Rhett and Link. So um, you can go look that up. The, the, that's the exact link right there, but you can also just uh, Google that. She also has a podcast, and she did an episode um, talking with a guy named Matt Middleberg. No relation to Middleburg, Florida. Um, but uh, she uh, was talking with, uh, has a conversation with him where they kind of unpack Rhett and Link stories. Um, also, the Gospel Coalition has, they put out a book um, a couple years ago called Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church. Um, so it's a book, but they also had, did a panel discussion that had the same title. So you can find that either on YouTube or on their, or on their podcast. It's a panel discussion where they, where they talk through some of this. Um, and then also Zach Mabry, who is um, a, uh, one of the full-time guys uh, up at Snowbird. Um, I actually had several conversations with Zach uh, on the phone leading up to, leading up to tonight. Um, but Zach uh, is a really smart dude, if you've never heard Zach uh, speak. Um, but he also, a couple years ago, um, uh, put out a, a, a response on Snowbird's website about that. Um, so uh, I'll uh, leave this up here. Um, but I hope that I hope that tonight has been challenging, but also encouraging. I hope that that ultimately we're we're encouraged by this, and hopefully give some clarity about how how we should be approaching this, uh, especially with uh, with young people. So if you have have any questions, comments, I always tell students if you have questions, comments, concerns, or protests, come talk to me. So.